Good evening, everyone. Embracing this cold, frigid Florida winter eve. Ah, but it's a little warmer in here, which is great. So with that, let's jump in tonight. Uh, does anyone like reading biographies? I do. I do. Anyone? A couple of you? Some of you? Okay, a few of you. Okay, cool. All right. Maybe it's not your favorite genre like science fiction or fantasy or whatever. But for me, I love biographies. And here's why. Because within biographies, we have the opportunity to learn from both the successes and pitfalls of the life of another person. In other words, it's like the old adage that my dad used to tell me, which is learn from other people who put their hands on a lawnmower. That's really graphic and terrible, but that's the way my dad talks sometimes. But like that idea, like you go, oh, wow, that's a really bad idea. I'm not going to do that. Or wow, that's a really good idea. I'm going to do that. A few years ago, I read a book called How to Be Like Walt. And uh, it is a biography on Walt Disney. I um, growing up as a Disney kid and as a Disney adult, I uh, have read a plethora of books about Disney history and stuff. But this is one of the most interesting books because it was a biography about Walt, but it was focused on the wisdom and principles from the words and actions of Walt Disney himself regarding like leadership, family stuff, and other topics. But it was filled with all these wonderful insights of the, of the things that Walt did and how he led. But it also was honest about a number of the difficult realities about who Walt was and the lessons that we can learn even from his shortcomings, which is good because none of us are the sum of our best or worst decisions. We're a mixed bag. We're human. And now this book was, it was really good because of those insights, because of kind of the rawness and the humanity that it kind of paints Walt in. Now, this reminded me of the fact that we discover so much about a person and we begin to consciously and subconsciously begin to emulate their life as we study them. Now, we don't really think of people as a subject to be studied, but the reality is we do this all the time when we are just hanging out with friends uh, or mentors, when we read biographies, listen to podcasts, listen to stories of the lives of others, we begin to take on little pieces of them as we go. We learn from their mistakes. We learn from their successes. Uh, we begin to even, I mean, do you remember like maybe in high school or even as an adult, you start kind of taking on some of the mannerisms of the people you hang around a lot. The, word you're, the words you use, the phrases you use kind of begins to change a little bit as you're hanging around a group of people or a person. We absorb habits, take on best practices. And most importantly for tonight, we begin to be formed by their mentality think the concept of groupthink, but like sometimes at the best version of that, where we learn and we are changed as we are around pe other people. Oftentimes that can be good and helpful. Other times, not so much. But when we as followers of Jesus think of Jesus, oftentimes I don't believe we think of him in that same light as the people who influence us by our exposure to them. Here's what I mean by that. Um, maybe for you, you oftentimes, when you think of Jesus, like that last song you're, that we were singing, it is talking about so many of the beautiful realities of Jesus. I mean, all three of those songs we sang tonight so far, we're talking about um, the names of Jesus, uh, the Lion of Judah, like that idea. So do you, when you think of Jesus, do you think of the kingly son of God, which he is? Or do you think of Jesus primarily as savior, which he is? Do you think of Jesus as a friend, somebody who knows where you're at and he sits with you in the mess? He is. 
Or do you think of Jesus as a teacher? Somebody who is there to give you good moral and ethical lessons, which he does that too. See, those are some of the true realities of him. But when, when we think of Jesus, so often we don't think of him as an example to model our lives around. We can think, well, he's God. So he's so different than me or so different than us humans. I mean, let me put it into practical terms. Say you are facing an ethical dilemma at work and like your best coworker friend comes up to you and says, hey, um, they're on to me. I've been skimming off the top at work. I'm stealing stuff. Um, they're on to me. I need you to cover for me. Now in that moment, there's a right decision and an easy decision, right? Like they're the right decision is going, you need to go talk to them and get this straightened out and let the, let the chips fall. But there's also the easy decision, which is, yeah, whatever's, whatever I can do to not get caught in this, you know, like that idea. Now, if someone were to come to you and say to you, here's what you should do in that moment. Just ask, what would Jesus do? You might feel like that's not quite a sufficient answer to the question, right? Why? Because Jesus isn't you where you're at right now with that friend in front of you telling you this ethical dilemma and you are like, Jesus isn't here. So like, what, why would, what would Jesus do have to do with this moment? So we may be tempted to say, well, if I were Jesus, I'd be perfect. And then the right choice also becomes the easy choice. And in which case this whole thing gets solved very fast. Son of God, savior, friend, teacher, for sure. But do we envision Jesus in his life as an example? What does Jesus really know about my life? It's kind of the question we're talking about. Now, last week we talked about the mindset of Jesus. What would it look like to have his mindset? A mindset not valuing yourself over others. A mindset of genuine humility and love. A mindset focused on unity within the family of God. But when Paul writes about this mindset, he's not just giving a concept of mental exercises to go down. He is writing about the mindset of Jesus that informed the way that Jesus lived his life. And here's where Paul's going to get to tonight. If we are being formed into the same mindset of Jesus, then it should lead us to a life that emulates the way that Jesus lived life. In other words, Paul doesn't seem to think that Jesus is a bad example a distant example. He actually is going to be talking about him as if he's the best example that's ever existed. But what's interesting is Paul doesn't come up with a new statement on his own as per his usual thing. Instead, what he's going to do is he is actually going to riff on a, uh, a billboard t- chart topper in the early church um, that is going to be a staple that he is going to draw from and write down to demonstrate this example of the life of Jesus. So tonight we're going to be in Philippians chapter two, starting in verse five. And as we go, we are asking the question, what does Jesus know about my life? What does he know about where I'm at? Because even in this room of this size right now, some of you just had like the best week ever last week. Some of you just had the worst week ever last week. Some of you are had the most confusing week ever last week. And wherever we are at, when we're in so many different places, wherever you are at today, can we look to Jesus 
and think that he actually knows what's going on? Or do we kind of go into the mindset when we're like preteens looking at our parents and going, you have no idea what it's like to be like me, right? So Philippians chapter two, starting in verse five, I'm gonna read the entire passage and then we'll go from there, starting in verse five. So this is where we left off last week. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So now he is going to riff on to a song. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is gonna be a very theologically dense song, granted, but it's still a song, I promise. But emptied himself. I'm sorry, yep. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. So verse five, where we left off last week, it connects us because last week we focused on how we are called to strive for unity, to have a mindset that demonstrates radical humility to where we are now this week, focusing on the ultimate example of this reality played out in the life of Jesus. See, to have this mindset of Jesus doesn't mean to just like intellectually agree with the things Jesus says. Because I'd imagine for most of us, if we follow Jesus, we would intellectually agree with the things Jesus said. And we'd go, yes, I agree that those are true things. Or even to some degree that we even sometimes desire the same things that Jesus does, that we would demonstrate love for God and love for people but that our minds and our hearts have radically been transformed and therefore our faith, our mindset has grown legs to walk in our everyday lives. See, from there, he connects us to the song about the Messiah, but it's different than we might naturally expect. And here's why. Because it demonstrates the upside down economy of the kingdom of God. See, this song proclaims both the ultimate example of Jesus' humility as well as the ultimate display of the glory of Jesus lived out. Now, tonight, we're going to focus just on that first part, the humility of Jesus. And next time we're in Philippians, we'll focus on the latter half of the song. But there's two concepts here, and that's why I read the whole thing. Humility and glory. Humility and glory, two connected concepts in this passage, in this song, that in the Roman world were not connected at all. They were actually considered in in this world, in Philippi, where this is being written to, this would have been the antithesis of one another. Now, we chatted about last week that in Greek, the word humility literally translates to being of the dirt or debased or crushed. Not exact, uh, a better a better thing would be to say humiliated. That idea, this was a phrase that was reserved for bond servants and slaves who bow down and have to get into the dirt to serve others. That humility was not something that was thought of and going, oh, that's so sweet. That person is so humble and kind. It was who values humility? There was no value system in there for this. So this hymn of Jesus is actually bizarre to the culture of Philippi. Now remember, Philippi was little Rome. That means that there's a colony of Rome far away distance, geographically distance wise, but in culture, 
it was very much the same. They dressed, they talked, they acted, they believed as if they lived in the heart of Rome itself. So this hymn could not have been less likely in the mindset of the culture that they were found in. Now, there's a side note but not quite a side note. There's a music project uh, that's super, I, I love them. It's super hipster. Uh, I don't know if hipsters are still a thing anymore, but it is. Uh, but it's called uh, Salos. And this uh, music collective, what they do is they take entire books of the Bible and they produce entire albums where they go passage by passage in a entire book of the Bible. They're expositionally singing songs and uh, they are displaying the artistic beauty and truth of the scriptures. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is not just for a plug for them, although so Apple Music, Spotify, check them out on your drive home. You won't regret it. Um, but they recently released an album on Philippians, as it so happens. And in it, there's a song that well articulates the Roman version of what this played out like, what they attached to glory, pride, power, and conquering. So I want to play for you for just a couple minutes the first song. A song. This song is called The Anthem of Rome. So it is, the album is hipster, I promise. I know that song is not exactly hipster, but the reason I wanted to play that for you is because it sets the context for what's happening here. In Roman culture, that was what victory looked like. That's what glory looked like. It didn't look like Jesus at all. It looked like a sword. 
It looked like power. It looked like shows of strength and force. There was no part of their culture that had anything for gentle and lowly of heart, Jesus. There's no version where they wanted the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth was laid. But yet that's what came into this space in the midst of Philippi was budding the kingdom of God. The way of Rome is so vitally different than the way of Jesus. Caesar was the ultimate example of the way of Rome. Now in your life, who is the ultimate example of the way that you pattern your life after? Is it like a politician or a celebrity or a parent? I mean, even at our best, human beings cannot begin to rival the example we discover in Jesus. See, Jesus is the ultimate example of the way of the eternal kingdom. And within this passage, within this song, we gaze upon the person of Jesus. And if our hearts and minds are open, let's look and check this out together. Verse six. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, before there was a baby born in a manger in the backwoods of Bethlehem, Jesus already existed. In fact, he always existed. Jesus is not just human. He is God. And within this passage, we discover that truth. See, there were a number of heretical or wrong beliefs about Jesus that had already begun floating around in the life of the early church and throughout the history of the church. Now, some wanted to focus on the concept that Jesus was like a good moral teacher, but he couldn't actually be God. But here we discover that he has always been God, a functioning member of the Trinity, along with the Father and the Spirit. But notice what he does here with this authority, with this power. He doesn't pursue his own greatness. Instead, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, here's where this, where this matters, why this is an example for us tonight. Do you desire to grow out of your possessiveness of stuff or people? Do you see the importance of letting go of the rights that you have? To let go of the right to hold on to anger and bitterness for the good of a relationship. See, this is the way of Jesus. Jesus had the rights of deity but he didn't see that as something to be grasped, as something to be pursued. He saw it as an opportunity, which is what he get to in verse seven. Verse seven, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. There's a, a missionary to Africa who came across uh, a story and uh, that in this, in this particular tribe, the, the chief of the tribe was always the, the youngest, most fit, strongest man in the village. And he, oh, you could always tell who he was because he was wearing this, this elaborate headdress and very elaborate garb. And then one day, um, another man was walking, carrying water, and he fell into this giant pit where the well, where the well water comes from. Now, when he fell down into this pit, he broke his leg. As soon as he broke his leg, it, the word got out and the chief was summoned. The chief takes off his headdress, takes off of his royal garb and enters into the pit because he's the only one strong enough to carry this man out. Now, did the chief stop being chief because he took off the headdress and the garb? No, 
That's not the way that worked. He still maintained uh, his role and his position while his headdress and garb that signified those things were taken off to the side. Now, when Jesus was born as a vulnerable infant in the backwoods of a forgotten colony, he didn't cease to be God, but he did in some respects veil his divinity. Now, when we typically think of the word emptying, we typically think of when a substance is removed from a container of some sort, right? If you empty out the last of the pog juice, um, passion fruit, orange guava, it's the best stuff ever. But like you, you would empty that into my glass and I would consume it. And then the pitcher is going to be empty, right? But this verse explains that that is not what it means by emptying. Instead, it actually explains what it means by emptying. But emptied himself, how? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In other words, what it's getting at is that it is subtraction by addition. He's not like Disney's Hercules, where uh, Hercules is like forced is forced to drink the the um, the juice. I don't know that stuff, the potion that uh, takes him from immortality, and he ends up becoming immortal. That would be emptying of his immortal godlike status in terms of Hercules. That's not what this is. This is the addition of human nature coming into alongside his divine nature. Now that makes my head hurt really bad if I think too hard about it. Maybe it does the same for you. But what it's getting at is the purpose for this reality. He did it, why? Because he was really like, I wonder what what it's like to be a human on Thursdays, you know? No, it says, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, when Jesus was born as a vulnerable infant, He was taking on a human nature alongside his divine nature. And when we typically think of this, we see moments like when uh, John and Peter experienced Jesus in a scene known as the Mount of Transfiguration back in the Gospels, where Jesus is talking with some individuals who, had al- who were already in the kingdom of God, and his divinity was on full display to the point where Peter, who never has the right thing to say, ends up getting super tongue-tied and goes, uh, can I make you guys some tents or something? Like he is saying just ridiculous stuff. Jesus calls him out on it. He's like, Peter, just, just, just go sit down, buddy. Uh, and, and in that moment, that's what happens when his glory's on full display. But you see, Jesus, like the headdress coming off, allowed his glory to be veiled. Now, isn't that insane? Like theologically, that's insane. But think about why he did that. Why would the God of the universe, the Son Step into human frailty, brokenness, hunger, isolation, vulnerability, sadness, chaos, all of this. Why? God is with us. And Jesus came down to our level, setting aside his rights, his glory to execute a rescue mission for the lost and rebellious kids and to restore his creation. If, if, if we actually take any time to really dwell on that, we realize that that is just an insane reality. See, me and you, we cannot do this on our own. None of us could ever go into that pit because we are in the pit. We couldn't get ourselves out of the pit. But he laid aside his divinity in the sense that he took on human frailty. But remember what happened that one time Jesus and disciples sat down for dinner. 
before his execution. In John 13, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and they had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel. He tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel. This was the example that Jesus gave us. He wasn't just the servant so then we could go, oh, sweet, that means I can do whatever I want now. No, he tells his disciples, what I am doing, you are now called to go and do to others. See, I'm so often like the disciples jockeying for position and attention, but you see the way of Jesus is humble and servant-hearted. Do you find yourself competing for position and attention? Do you struggle with seeing yourself as a servant to others? But see, this is the way of Jesus, serving our friends, serving our family, serving our neighbors, serving our coworkers, caring. And see, here we discover the way of Jesus lived out as he walked the same planet that we currently inhabit, the one who called us to come and follow him. Verse eight says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, here's what's so important that we know about this, because this is something that is super misunderstood. Nobody took Jesus's life. Nobody took Jesus's life. Not Judas, not the Pharisees, not Herod, not Rome, not even the Heavenly Father. His life was not taken from him true. Judas sold out his location for some silver. True. The Pharisees felt threatened by Jesus and asked Herod to deal with him. True. The governor Herod was a coward and was afraid of an uprising within his jurisdiction. So he bows down to the desires of others. True. Rome employed the soldiers who brutalized him, mocked him, scorned him, and prepared his cross and nailed him on it. True. Even the father desired to redeem and restore his creation and knew the only way to adopt into his forever family, his rebellious sons and daughters was by calling his beloved son to pay the the penalty that he did not owe. But no one forced the hand of Jesus. Instead, in humility, he willfully submitted to the call of the father, no matter the cost. Do you see why that's good? Do you see why that changes things? Because one, a lot of bad things have happened to specific people groups like the Jewish people because of a misunderstanding of this moment. Jesus wanted to be there, but not because he was a glutton for punishment, but because the only way to redeem and rescue you and me was by being there. I love how C.S. Lewis articulates this in his book, Miracles. In the Christian story, God descends to re-ascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has a picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before the incredible straightens his back, marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. 
Or you might think of a diver. He says, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through the green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay. Then up again, back to color and life, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hands the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. Do you see the beauty of this? Do you see the power of a life laid down for others? Do you see the way that love is on display in going into broken stories to be a part of redemption? See, this is the way of Jesus. And here we discover the way of Jesus is lived out as Jesus willfully allowed himself to be placed on a cross to surrender his own life, to redeem and restore humanity and the world from its brokenness. This is the one we follow. He doesn't look anything like Caesar. Do you see how powerful, difficult, and beautiful the way of Jesus is? To sugarcoat it is simply an option, um, as simple or as an option that will always provide exactly what you could ever dream of. Like you're definitely gonna live your best life now. Like that idea, that would just be a lie. That's not God's job. But the way of Jesus is beautiful. It's beautiful because because in following after his way is a life that calls forth beauty from ashes. It vanquishes darkness with everlasting light. It promises true justice in the midst of an unjust world. This is the beauty of following after Jesus. It's not cotton candy, but it's the real deal. Cotton candy dissolves in your mouth after a second anyway, right? but this stuff's eternal. And we imperfect humans are invited into this story with him. So we don't need to just ask, what would Jesus do? Although some pretty stellar um, uh, wristbands around circa 1997 um, really had it going on. But a better question that I love, Pastor John Mark Homer says is, but what would Jesus do if he were in my context? Isn't that good? What would Jesus do if he were in my context? If he worked my job, if he had my relationships as, if he had my roommates, if he had my family, if he was dealing with this ethical dilemma at work, how would Jesus process this? And we actually get to discover some of the answer to that. Because for those of us who follow after Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us who is meant to be our guide into all truth. And we have the word of God who, that is the, the word of truth that allows us to be formed and reshaped into the mindset of Jesus. And as we take on the mindset of Jesus, we begin to know what would Jesus do in my context? It wouldn't be a bunch of foolish stuff. It would be good stuff, life-giving stuff. It would be humble stuff. See, the way of Jesus is vastly different from the way of Rome or the way of this world today. Even the way of the way of Orlando, Florida, America, planet Earth today. And especially different than my natural desires. As always, though, our caution is to remember that this is not just about gritting it, working harder, doing more. This is about learning, leaning into the empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God to empower us to radically shape our mindset to follow in the way of Jesus. Now, some of you have um, the... uh, 
terribly incurable condition I'm coming to re realize, which is recreational running. Um, you guys like to like do things like pay a bunch of money to go and get some metal from Disney. I, I don't understand it. Uh, now, here's why I mentioned that. Could I, Danny Connor, run a marathon? No. <laughs> Could I, Danny Connor, run a marathon? Yes. You know, like, yes, theoretically I could. So what would it take to get from a no to a yes? Well, from what I hear from these, these friends of mine who do such things is it takes training, conditioning, um, some, some changes to what I eat, discipline eating, and, and probably a decent amount more that I am not prepared for. See, the discipline empowers the person to, to do what on your natural course you could not do yet you are actually theoretically capable of doing. See, as we grow to depend on the spirit of God, we discover that we have been empowered to follow the way of Jesus. Not that we will ever do it perfectly, not that we'll ever get it right 100%, but that's the journey of sanctification to become more like him. But day by day, we learn to rely on his strength, his power. So we don't have to have this like victim mindset towards the world where we go, man, I like everything is just caving in on me. Or what I often do, man, I am just the worst. Like I wish I could be more loving or kind or patient, but I just can't. But the reality is I have the spirit of God dwelling within me and that is good news on my best day. And it's good news on my worst day. It's just straight up good news. And it's good news for all of us who follow after him that we don't have to stay where we've always been, that we can grow, that we can draw near to him, that we can become what we cannot be on our own. Now I want to finish with this. Salos did another song. This one is themed after this passage. And you'll see some similarities between it and the song of the Anthem of Rome. So this one's called the Anthem of Zion. And what I would love for us to do as we are doing, as we are listening to the song, is simply take time to dwell on the lyrics and the beauty of the ultimate example that we have in Jesus. Let's go ahead and play that song.
of Jesus is different than the way that I'm naturally prone to. And I'm going to venture a guess and say you too. But the way of Jesus is incredible because within it, we discover true freedom and true life. We discover the way that we were called to be, the way we were pre-programmed to exist in a way that would bring glory and honor to him, not me. And in that song, I love that it reminds us that ultimately we are hidden underneath his wing. His care, his compassion is over us. That's what the cross demonstrated. It demonstrated true power. True power is not found at the edge of a sword. True power is found in the one who allowed his hands to be pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. It doesn't make sense to the way of the world, but it is beautiful and it's powerful and it changes everything. So tonight we are going to respond together as a biblical community. And the way we're going to do that is through taking communion. Now, within communion, there are a ton of different faith traditions in the way that they um, handle and perceive communion. But as a church, we see communion as the ultimate metaphor of the gospel. That when we drink the cup, when we take the bread, we are being reminded of the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but went to the point of death, even death on a cross for you and for me. So that's what we are reminded of with communion is the gospel, the simplistic beauty of the gospel. So the way that we as a community demonstrate that is we, um, we practice what's called open communion. What that means is that whether you call Mosaic Church your home or not, you are welcome to come and take communion. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus, if you have desired to follow in his way, if you have seen that there is no life outside of him, and if that's you, you're welcome to come and take, even if this is your first time here. If that is not you and you and you still have questions about Jesus or you still don't know about all this faith stuff or, or any of it, that's totally okay. You're in a safe space to ask questions and just be. So we just ask, feel free to just stay seated. Um, no need to move forward. And instead just witness as, as this biblical community desires to be reminded of the one whose humble example we desire to follow. You'll notice um, up, on, up in the front, there are communion stations. Uh, there's self-serve communion stations tonight. There's gluten-free and um, glutinous options. Uh, just so you know, uh, they, both the, the, uh, the cup of grape juice and the cracker are, um, they're, they're not tasty. Uh, and um, I'm going to go ahead and say that that's intentional. It's not intentional. There's better ones coming. But it's intentional tonight because in that, you're going to be reminded not of the great taste of Welch's grape juice or something, right? You're going to be reminded of the beauty of the gospel in whatever way that takes form, okay? So feel free to, to do that.
So here's how this is going to work. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come on up. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And then after I'm done praying, what I would like for you to do is not immediately come up. Paul writes in the New Testament saying that we should not be too eager to go to the communion table. Because if we do, we would miss out on the opportunity that we have to reflect on where we've been. So what I would encourage you to do is take a moment to have a time of confession between you and the Lord. Confession, not the most popular of topics. That's okay. But that's what we're called into. Ask God, God, is there anything in me that I need to bring to you, that you need to bring to my attention so that I can confess to you? And simply just be with the Father for a minute. And then after a few moments, feel free to go ahead and stand up and go ahead and take your communion elements, take them back to your seat. You'll find that the cup, which symbolizes the blood of Jesus that was humbly poured out for you, and the cracker, which is on top after, which um, symbolizes the, uh, the body of Jesus that was pierced so that we could have new life. So take those elements, maybe take a moment with any friends or family that are um, sitting beside you or whatever, or feel free to take it by yourself and just spend time reminding yourself of the beauty of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that it gives us the ultimate display of humility and, and humanity. What humanity's life was apart from you, but what you have drawn us into. That we are now called your kids. And it's not because we're so cool or awesome or fashionable or intelligent or righteous, but because Jesus is flawless. And in his flawless life, he did not count that as something to be grasped, but stepped into our frame and took on our frailties to serve us. Father, I was thinking about this week, how I, what could I possibly offer to you? How do I outserve the ultimate servant? The answer is I don't. I don't. I simply follow in your wake, leaning into your mindset, following in your path. Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice. That you stepped into humble human form to serve us, us humans. for that moment, Lord, when glory is full and every knee will bow down and say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Yes, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.